Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan. Uh, Very happy to be back. I was off for the last two weeks, first because I was sick, then because I was on vacation. Uh, But The Jacobin Channel aired a series on European social democracy in my absence. So hopefully you caught that. It's all there on the channel. If you missed it, take a look. Uh, I'm excited for today's show because, number one, I'm talking to Catherine Liu, a fan favorite, a favorite of me, of course. We're going to be talking about uh, the problem with California, specifically why a deep blue, incredibly diverse state has soaring levels of poverty, income inequality, and uh, uh, just, you know, rising rates of crime and homelessness. Catherine, uh, true true to her form, has some interesting answers. Uh, so, so we're going to have a conversation about that. I'm also talking to Danny Bessner about NATO and specifically Finland and Sweden's recent applications to join NATO and what that means for um, the future of NATO-Russian conflict and how the left should be thinking about these developments. And first, I am talking to none other than producer Cale Brooks about the ongoing uh, problem of guns in the U.S. and gun reform and why it's so difficult to achieve that. So let's dive into it. All right, so I am now here with Kale to talk about guns and gun reform in the U.S., or lack thereof, obviously in light of the recent tragic mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Um, I think that, you know, there's obviously been a lot of commentary going on about um, why we can't pass meaningful gun reform in the U.S. So I think I want to start with that question. Kale, I know you have some thoughts and comments about that. And I just want to say, from my perspective, it seems like the two dominant strains of commentary when it comes to this question of why we can't pass meaningful gun reform in the U.S. sort of sent one sort of centers on the culture of guns in the U.S. Mm. and then the other centers on the um, our political system. And I don't think that the two are necessarily mutually exclusive, um, but I want to start with the kind of cultural uh the cultural narrative, because, you know, that's the one that quite honestly, I find a little less convincing. And I don't think that it's completely wrong. I do think that there are some components of culture that play into this problem. And we can get into that. Uh, But broadly speaking, the cultural narrative around why we can't pass gun reform is basically that we are in a sick society that is so saturated by love of guns and worship of guns that we collectively are unable to generate the political will to pass gun reform. And um, just, you know, a lot of people, I think, in the days after Uvalde have been kind of, you know, taking this line, like, what is wrong with our culture? Why can't, you know, we collectively pass gun reform? Uh, And I I just want to read a quote quickly from The New Yorker's uh, Jelani Cobb. He's a columnist there, and he wrote an article uh, that came out pretty recently of the gun problem. He writes, some of this is on Second Amendment fundamentalists and the politicians who translate their zealotry into law. The rest is on every one of us who has yet to find the courage, the creativity, or the resolve to stop it. Uh, And, you know, I think that that is representative, again, like I said, of this kind of narrative that we have a sort of cultural sickness that prevents us from um, um, moving forward with gun reform. Now, the political, uh, the the kind of uh, 
explanation that centers on our political systems obviously looks at the fact that we live in a, you know, pretty anti-democratic system. Uh, the, the kind of big thing that keeps coming up is the filibuster, right? Um, mm. Without, you know, without filibuster reform, it just, we will not be able to pass anything close to uh, what is necessary uh, to, you know, combat gun violence in the Senate. So um, I I have a few more comments on that, or I, I could say a little more on that, but let me hand it over to you, Kale, because I know that you have some thoughts on this as well. Yeah, well, I, I think how you laid it out is probably how most people see it. And, they, and I think you're right that they're both relevant issues, that the political system is, in fact, highly undemocratic, and it's like riddled with gridlock, that mm-hmm. nothing substantial has really gotten through uh, any of our legislatures in the last couple decades really like aside from you know it's like a miracle when something does actually finally pass um and uh and the the legislation or people pushing for legislation around um gun control or about banning certain uh weapons or certain um features on weapons background checks um obviously has been one of the most prominent um places where like politicians actually have been trying to to push like there hasn't been you know, a massive push for single payer and it's failed every single time. Whereas like with guns, it gets pushed, you know, seemingly every other year. uh, And nothing except for a couple of minor adjustments under the Trump administration have actually passed. Um, And same with, you know, like the, the cultural arguments, I think like, it's totally true that like there is truly like, there's a lot of people who um, have made a culture around this. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think with both of them, it's confusing, uh, effects for causes that they in both cases these aren't the things that are driving the problem it's the results of actual underlying problems within our society within our within economics within uh democracy that like actually then produce these outcomes um so i think you know when it comes to the cultural stuff like it's interesting because like when you when you see the polling on on guns, on like, you know, uh, do you think there should be more or less gun control or restrictions on guns? Um, most people say yes. Most people mm-hmm. overwhelmingly like agree to some extent of gun control. Um, but when you ask like certain questions, you get more revealing answers. So like one, it, like one question that Gallup had asked was, uh, would you support legislation that would ban guns broadly for the American public, but allow police to to keep guns that they would still have weapons the population broadly wouldn't mm-hmm. um and something like 80 percent of people said they don't support that right um yeah that it's there really is like a, a culture but it's also like it's in response to real things not mm-hmm. everyone a lot of there's again we can like bracket out like kind of the subcultural like people who um you know it's for they would claim for sport or for, uh, you know, shooting practice or something, or it's just like, they like having them, they like touching them and stroking them. I don't know. There's that. Sure. But like, obviously I think a lot of it uh, comes down to a a legitimate concern, whether it's responding to legitimate like circumstances is maybe situation by situation and, you know, geographically different and, and dispersed, but there's like actual anxiety over feeling that, you know, I need to protect myself. Right. And that atomization is real and you can't like, yeah. you know, and, and again, if you're in like an inner city, it's going to be far more real. It's part of your day-to-day life that you actually probably, you know, there's people who 
actually do live lives where like they're they're fighting for survival um you know depending on like the neighborhood you're in um but for a lot of people obviously that's not the case but that still still is this atomization that yeah. has to be addressed right right that's very real. And I guess, you know, obviously from a materialist perspective, the answer to why that culture, why we have that culture is because of our completely broken and self-sabotaging government uh, that, you know, consistently undermines itself, um, produces no public trust, and uh, basically tells American citizens you're on your own. Um, we've talked about that plenty of times on the show before. Uh, mm. So it's not that the it's not that the highly individualistic culture produces this broken government. It's the other way around, as you right. said. Um, and I want to say just on the topic of, you know, public opinion toward various gun reforms, um, lots of people have pointed out, and I think it's worth repeating that of like an overwhelming majority of the public, like we're talking 80 to 90% supports what is sort of commonly called common sense gun reforms, right? So that's like mandatory and uh, universal um, uh, background checks, closing the gun show loophole, so to speak. And I think a pretty significant majority of the U.S. public even supports a ban on assault weapons, if not, you know, handguns and, and other guns that aren't assault weapons. So I think that that I think that that, again, um, kind of speaks to the shortcomings of just a purely cultural narrative. Um, I, I don't think that there is as, as we've been saying, I do think that there is a kind of like atomized and individualized American culture, which, you know, may or may not be sort of replicated in other parts of the world. But at the same time, um, I don't think that we have a culture of death, so to speak. I, I, I don't no. think that uh, Americans, I mean, I think that there's a lot of evidence showing that most Americans support, like I said, what is called common sense gun reforms, even if opinions are divided on some of the other issues. But I think, you know, a larger problem, which again goes back to kind of the broken political system is even if the U.S. government was able to pass these common sense gun reforms on a national level, which they aren't, that wouldn't be enough to stop gun violence because right. there are just so many guns in circulation already that without something more drastic, like, for example, a program of mandatory buybacks, mm -hmm. um, we just won't be able to tackle the problem at all. Right. Well, and, and also, like, again, insofar as it's a it's a problem of atomization or, you know, individuals feeling insecure or that they need to protect themselves or their families. That's basically an economic situation. Mm -hmm. That's an economic yeah. problem. It's people feeling that they don't have what they need to to get by, that they're right. they're worried about, you know, uh their 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 actual social standing. Mm -hmm. Um whether it's, you know, um and for a lot of people, again, like it's it's easy to like kind of hold up in your head the like the middle class suburban you know white gun owner or something as like the the template and like that's again probably a portion of the this population but um obviously people who own guns who use guns who you know it's it's across the board um it's you know i think it's something most people don't own guns but like you know there's there's people who are in inner cities where like, you know, handgun violence is, is the, the predominant issue, mm -hmm. not, you know, assault rifles. Right. Um, and, um, but again, that, that atomization that people feel like it's largely stemming from poverty. And mm -hmm. it's not the fact that everyone who feels anxious is in fact in poverty, but it's the fact that there is poverty and poverty leads to people making decisions that you probably wouldn't make uh, if you weren't dealing with like, 
dire straits mm -hmm. uh, that you you end up you know finding alternative means of getting by you find illegal uh, means of of making income or getting the things you need um, because you find you know just trying to get a regular job and uh, you know have a, a regular income that meets all of your needs isn't happening that's not mm -hmm. you're not that's not available mm -hmm. and so you end up getting so poverty ends up being kind of the root of of this insecurity of this, and right. you know, of people turning to to guns and gun violence as a means of of getting by, um, and that's something that I think, like you know, going back to the the political problem of you know, why is it that politicians don't do anything or uh, are unable to do something? Um, a lot of it, I think, comes down to that that it's um, there's this kind of tacit understanding that. The problem is an underlying structural one mm -hmm. that uh, that creates, you know, uh, you know, a population of people who are who end up, you know, uh, engaged in, in owning or engaged in gun violence. Um, but they can only ever really propose, you know, these piecemeal or these um, these minor reforms because they don't actually have the means to or not only the means, but like for a lot of these people, like they don't really want to actually deal with the root causes. So mm -hmm. like, yeah. mo like most of the Democrats would say today, you know, the problem is not, you know, the, they would say the problem is our Republicans on, on right. the other side of the aisle, that the Republicans are the reason why we can't do anything and that we should try to just push something through, um, you know, and at the very least, like, see where everyone stands. And so then you can say, like, OK, you Republican, you got to you got to, you know, man right. up. You can't take that that donor money anymore. Um, and it's this like totally kind of voluntary understanding of politics that is bound to lose. And yeah. it's like becoming deeply aggravating where mm -hmm. like I'm I'm from Connecticut. Uh, I don't live in Connecticut right now, but like uh, Richard Blumenthal is like my former senator when i was living in connecticut he still is the senator now and he you know he comes out after every you know mass shooting and and says you know republicans just won't let us uh do what we need to do right and he he gives a moving speech and it's truly usually like jerking like it's like deeply upsetting because this is a horrific situation right uh but the actual political solution like is just insulting it's mm -hmm. like it's because it's not actually dealing with the yeah, problem. Yeah. So I want right. to, if you don't mind, I want to actually just run a clip of him so yeah. I can break this down exactly what I mean, what I'm talking about. Because uh, this is him last week, uh, or, you know, uh, this is May 24th, um, speaking on the Senate floor about uh, the, the recent Texas shooting. Common sense, sensible steps can prevent the senseless, needless violence. There is no panacea, but there are actions we can take. We are not without agency. Now, we need to be very blunt and recognize that opposition to these measures is bankrolled and emboldened and enabled by the guns lobby's dark money, by its threats and intimidation, by its encouragement. And until my colleagues have the courage to stand up to that gun lobby, they will continue in its thrall and its grip. And they will continue to be complicit. And some on 
our side, some who have demonstrated the courage to stand up and speak out, have shown that we have the power to take action. But yeah, so basically, and that's like five or six minutes into a speech where it, it again, it's very moving, but ultimately it boils down to, yeah, they don't have the willpower to mm-hmm. give up the money. Right. Uh, if only they, you know, grew a heart. Right. And we can't wait for Republicans to grow a heart right. uh, because this is how politics works for everything. It's mm-hmm. like, why is it that the Democrats won't, you know, support single payer? Why right. is it that, you know, there's like a million things that would make life so much better for the vast majority of working people mm-hmm. that they won't touch because uh, they have an interest in maintaining an economy that is in the interests of, of billionaires of corporations that, yeah. you know, that those are their pr- primary constituents as politicians. Uh, and so, you know, the Republicans, you know, are not going to move because uh, why would they? they? They're not worried about, you know, not being reelected. Uh, and they're very happy to take the money. It's just useful. It's like one more donor. Yeah. Blumenthal's speech and also relatedly, uh, Beto O'Rourke recently confronted Governor Abbott in a kind of, you know, big display. Um, I, I think that both of these people are like obviously well-intentioned. I believe that they like deeply care about this issue, but I think that these grand speeches also kind of reveal the limits of consciousness raising, right? Uh, I mean, I've, I've been noticing also um, basically since Sandy Hook, but like especially now, every time there is a, you know, horrific, tragic mass shooting, there's kind of a a spate of of commentary that comes out that's basically just wallowing in nihilism, right? Like, and this is kind of what I was getting at um, when we started talking at the beginning. Um, There there seems to be a new genre of commentary that's like, oh my God, like things are so bad. Like, you know, thoughts and prayers won't do anything. Like we, we've basically like passed the point of no return. Like we've gone beyond the pale. And, and I, I don't, I'm not criticizing anybody for writing this type of commentary. Like, again, like, I totally see where it comes from. But I think, again, it just reveals that we sort of reached the limits of consciousness raising, right? Like, what is there left to say? Or like, what kind of propaganda is there left to disseminate that could actually change things? And I think that, again, goes to show that it isn't a matter of people not being woken up to the truth of what's going on in America. Um, I, I also saw, uh, like, I know that recently people have been bringing up this idea of, you know, what if we released like gory crime scene photos from the school shootings or like, you know, release like these photos of dead children to Mm -hmm. kind of like shock the public into action, you know, the way that famously the photos of Emmett Till did or like photos from the Vietnam War. Uh, And, and I, you know, I, I, again, understand the impulse, I think, but I don't think that like more propaganda is what actually is the solution here. Right. Yeah. And that's because the world is driven by power, not by ideas. Right. It's right. not you. Everyone can have the right. Most people in America agree there's a problem and want a number of, of legislation to be passed that would vastly improve like right. our safety and right. our living standards. Uh, it doesn't happen because, uh, people actually have real material incentives that Mm -hmm. these politicians actually have real material incentives that they're not going to be able to, you know, push back on just because Mm -hmm. they, you know, they have a conscience like that's, 
you know, so that's where it's like if Blumenthal or or O'Rourke or you know others were serious about doing something about uh, gun violence, they would be trying to do political organizing that actually put pressure on the opposition in right. a way where like it threatens their ability to govern. Mm-hmm. Now, I I don't mean that in like a super kind of mysterious, you know, like violent way, but like in the sense of like you actually have to uh, jeopardize their ability to get reelected or to jeopardize the conditions um, in their district for, right. you know, uh, for profitability, for business to, to get by that, um, that that's actually historically, we know this because we've been doing, you know, democracy in some form for about 200 years, um, give or take probably a lot less, but, um, but that like, we know that like, that's actually what, uh, what changes things that you actually need disruption mm-hmm. that actually affects, not, you know, not just the politicians, but also like uh, elites, ruling class people, the businesses and corporations, their ability to get by so that they then say, no, we need to actually move on this. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you know, and like, it's not just, and it's, it's, I'm, I'm bringing up profitability because it can't just be protest. Cause like, yeah, we had the Parkland shooting mm-hmm. uh, protests. Students were marching across the country, massive protests. Um, and like, obviously like all those students who did that did the right thing. Right. Um, and, you know, that, you know, yeah. we probably need more protests too, but mm-hmm. the point is just that they didn't work. So yeah. like, we don't say like, okay, protest doesn't work. We say, well, we probably need more protests and we need, we need, actual mass action in a way mm-hmm. that's directed in a way that deals with stability in in society that actually right. upends uh normal you know flows of profit of the politician's ability to be reelected that you actually have to get at like what keeps these people in power right not just you know tug at their heartstrings because that right, doesn't right. Exactly. do anything about their their political status right Uh, Well, I think that's a good note to wrap up on. Uh, But before we go, I want to quickly shout out uh, Nivedita Majumdar's article from a few years ago. Unfortunately, this problem obviously like keeps coming up again and again. But she wrote an article a few years ago in Jacobin, which is called The Socialist Case for Gun Control. Um, And I, I quickly wanted to shout that out because I think... Um, I, I haven't seen it so much this time around, but I do feel that after a mass shooting, oftentimes there will be some quarters of the left that kind of come out against gun control, because I think the main arguments are that any new laws will sort of be used disproportionately against Black people. Uh, and then the other argument is, you know, there's a section of the left that uh, really likes guns and fetishizes guns and, you know, thinks that we need guns in order to protect ourselves against the government. Um, that's kind of like a, a shadowy inverse, right, of the right-wing um, preoccupation with guns. So I just want to quickly say that, you know, Nevedita's article is really great and I think takes on both of those claims head on. So um, definitely check that out. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Um, and again, I think the maybe the up upshot of this is just the fact that uh, like this, you know, this is a political issue, yeah. like other political issues. And the way that we have to deal with it is through like mass organizing. It's yeah. you won't have like the outcomes that benefit working people's lives like realized until you actually have working people organized. So like actions through unions, through political parties through, um, you know, actually affecting, again, the 
the general stability of, of you know society that's working in the interests of of rich people right. um so that's the i think the the only way out of this and it sucks because it's hard but um until, it's hard like, and it's boring like we always give the same solution because that's <laughs> that's what it is but yeah yeah all right. Well, thanks, Kale. Um, we will move on. But first, a quick message from our sponsor, Verso Books. Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website for as long as you're a subscriber. Join in June and get your first month free. This month's selections are Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Freedom by Ben Tarnoff, A Radical Manifesto for Fixing the Internet by Deprivatizing It, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History by Hugh Lemmy and Ben Miller, a historical biography based on the hugely popular podcast series, Humanitarian Borders, Unequal Mobility and Saving Lives by Polly Pallister Wilkins, and Interrogation of the Politics of Humanitarian Responses to Border Violence and Unequal Mobility, The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism, A Manifesto to arguing against the ideology of growth and without apology the abortion struggle now by jenny brown an indispensable guide to building a fighting feminist movement for reproductive freedom become a member today at versobooks.com All right, so I am now joined by our friend, Danny Bessner. He is, of course, a contributing editor at Jacobin and also co-host of the podcast, American Prestige. Danny, good to see you, as always. Uh, thank you so much for having me back, Jen. Uh, it's always a pleasure. It's been too long. It's been too long. I say it all the time. So, of course, you uh, are here to talk to us about NATO. Uh, let's let's begin by just talking about what NATO is. Um, I'm sure that most of the audience has a kind of general conception, um, but I know that there are there. There's a lot of I think misinformation or a lot of kind of like uh, weird ideas, uh, especially in kind of the liberal mainstream media about what NATO actually is. So, Danny, what is NATO? Sure. Um, so NATO is, is simply a military alliance. It was founded in 1949. Um, at the time, it was founded, the famous quote about NATO is to keep the Germans down. The Germans had, of course, been defeated in World War II, the Soviets out. The idea was that you prevent a Soviet invasion of Western Europe and the Americans in, which is the idea that the United States was responsible for European security because of the two world wars, which had plunged the world into devastation. Um, so that's specifically what NATO is now uh, founded in 1949 as a sort of Cold War institution. But I think uh, taking a little bit more of a medium term historical perspective, it's part of this global alliance system that the United States began to construct after World War II um, with NATO, but also with uh, CETO which is the Southeast Asian uh, version of NATO and the Baghdad Pact, which is the sort of Middle East-ish um, uh, version of NATO. So it's part of these globe-spanning alliance systems. Now, of course, uh, the Cold War has ended, as I'm sure everyone knows. Uh, and, and in fact, when the Cold War wound down between 1989 and 1991, there was a lot of discussion as to whether NATO should continue to exist. In fact, there, there's pretty significant historical research that demonstrates that U.S. leaders promised Soviet leaders – 
that NATO um, wouldn't move further eastward. Mm -hmm. Um, But there were even uh, arguments about whether it should exist at all in the absence of an existential threat. Um, It, of course, did continue to exist. It it was crucial to the U.S. um, effort to maintain its hegemony and unipolarity after um, or to really uh, to maintain what I would say was uh, a hegemon by 1989, but then to expand to be this unilateral unipolar power uh, in the 1990s. NATO was part of that. And and um, what has happened over the last 30 or so years is NATO has continuously um, expanded, uh, most importantly in 1999, uh, three nations of the Warsaw Pact, formerly, you know, the, the communist Warsaw Pact, the Czech Republic, Hungary and Poland uh, joined NATO. Uh, and NATO continued to expand uh, in the 2000s. Uh, in particular, in 2004, you have the biggest NATO expansion. Seven countries joined, Bulgaria, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Estonia, uh, Latvia, and Lithuania. Uh, and then in 2009, Croatia and Albania also joined NATO. And throughout this, there were discussions basically beginning in 2008 that NATO would consider Ukraine and Georgia, you know, former states of the Soviet Soviet Union. Uh, Stalin was from Georgia uh, mm-hmm. and, and several Soviet premiers uh, were also from Ukraine. Uh, we're considering uh, whether that would join um, so Soviet leaders uh, would join uh, whether these countries should join NATO. Uh, and that's basically a sort of potted history of, of NATO today. And in 2017, I believe that was the most recent. Oh, no, in 2020, actually. So in 2017, Montenegro joined NATO and in 2020, North Macedonia. Mm-hmm. that joins NATO. And so right. this is where we are today. Right. So to pick it up, you know, obviously the big NATO news uh, this month is that Finland and Sweden both recently applied to join NATO. Um, and I want to ask you about this specifically because obviously both countries have sort of, sort of historically, you know, remained neutral or non-aligned, um, but they've also had different relationships with Russia. Um, most notably, Finland shares a border with Russia. So, so you know, that makes a difference. Um, so let's start with Finland. Um, can you talk a little bit about Finland's sort of prior ties to Russia and how this may have influenced their decision to join NATO. Um, I I mean, just over the last few decades, because my conception is like, you know, Finland and Russia, like Russians take holidays and like go to Finland. That's like kind of all that I know. So what else is going on here? And and what has that relationship been like? Well, so I think the biggest thing um, to, to consider is that for for many many decades, Finland and Sweden both were effectively neutral powers. Mm-hmm. Um, but beginning in, in in the 1990s, they actually began to shed their neutrality. So in 1994, mm-hmm. Finland and Sweden actually joined NATO's. It's called this Partnership um, for Peace program. So that they, they're they're not officially in NATO, but they're aligning themselves with NATO. And then soon thereafter, they actually joined the European Union, which which is a very big deal because it's mm-hmm. a effectively saying a couple of things. One, it's saying that that the quote-unquote Eastern European project, which has been construed in various ways over the last several hundred years, but was really embodied in the 20th century by the Soviet Union, was over, and that these nations no longer had to worry effectively about what Russia, uh, the sort of the Russian Federation, the, the successor to the Soviet Union, um, felt about it, that they would formally align themselves with the West. So you you have this situation of countries, in, in particular like Europe, mentioning Finland, which have, a, which have a long and complicated history with the Soviet Union. I want to look up the exact date of the, you know, famously the Winter War mm-hmm. of, of uh, 1939 and 1940, uh, lots of exchanges going on for, for decades since then, uh, basically saying to the, to the Russian successor state that they 
don't have to worry about Russia and that they're going to align themselves with the West. Mm-hmm. And I think you see something similar happening in Sweden. Sweden doesn't have quite as close relations with Russia, but still a, a close relationship. So, so um, this is basically, I think, what we're witnessing now with the with the with the real desire, the real project to try to join NATO. The culmination of a twenty five year long process, wherein certain European nations, which are geographically situated in a way that would make them feel more in some organic sense connected to Russia, aligning themselves with the West, which is, of course, you know, in their formal sovereign rights, but would appear um, in a particular way to uh, Russian leadership. And and I would I, I would venture to guess not just someone like Vladimir Putin, kind of a, a, an inherently a, a aggressive guy, but but to many Russian leaders as well. So so that's effectively what what what's happening right now is that um Finland and Sweden uh, are culminating this, you know, half a uh, quarter of a century long process to mm-hmm. shed neutrality and to formally align with the quote unquote North Atlantic West. So how will these two countries joining NATO um, impact future conflicts between Russia and NATO? And is there any way that they're joining NATO now will change the trajectory or outcome of the ongoing invasion of Ukraine? Right. So I think this gets wrapped up in in the, the causal question of, of to what degree was Putin's invasion of Ukraine engendered by NATO expansion eastward? Um, and I think just just flat out, to be honest, I mean, I'm a historian. I think we don't quite know yet. We, we right. don't have, you know, access to interviews. We don't and might never have access to internal <laughs> deliberations and what was actually said. But I would venture to say that it was one of a, of a multitude of causes that that helped um, spark uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Um, there are other causes, uh, and I, I think that we should be careful not to you know, attribute this to a monocausal um, um, situation. Right. But I, w- I would say this is the cause where you know people who live in the United States have citizens, theoretically at least, have some sort of control over in practice they really don't have much control over but this is a decision made by you know leaders in the united states and western europe that democratic citizens should have control over so i think that's why it's been getting so much attention mm-hmm. um because i i think you you see some people on on uh, some liberals in particular and also people on the right basically say like how how dare you uh lambaste the nato expansion this was putin's decision and in, in some like trivial sense that's correct but in a more non-trivial sense you know we as as citizens not all of us but many of us and even just people living in the north atlantic world ha- theoretically have a say over over this sort of expansion so that's mm-hmm. why it's been focused upon um and i think that's a useful thing to politically do but i think like analytically we should be aware that this is not you know just caused by NATO expansion. I think right. it's caused quite a bit by Putin's theory of history. I think it's caused quite a bit by COVID isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's caused quite a bit by he, he, he's getting older and he wants to leave some sort of legacy. Um, I think it's caused by he wants to have access permanent to Crimea uh, and all of those sorts of things. But he's also worried about Western and particularly North, North Atlantic expansion eastward into a territory that at least in Putin's mind, and I don't want to debate the, the, the necessity of this idea spheres of influence, but at least in Putin's mind, seems to be within the Russian quote unquote sphere of influence. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, to, to kind of go back to this question of, you know, uh, like the degree of control that I don't know, we as citizens or like the left or whatever have over these decisions. Left has none. (laughs) Uh, Exactly. Exactly. And I, I mean, I do want to, I do want to get into that, you know, in, in a little more detail. Um, but 
something that I've been thinking about is, you know, Finland and Sweden are both governed by social democratic parties that I think enjoy broad popular support. Um, and it seems like, at least from what I can tell, a majority of the public in both countries uh, supports the decision to for these countries to join NATO. So like, how should the left um, here in the US, but also like more broadly globally view these developments? I mean, like, what can we do about NATO is maybe another way of asking the question. No, I think it's a really important question because the fundamental political reality um, in terms of being on the left in our era is that there is no international left that enjoys yeah. broad legitimacy and is able to coordinate actions. So what you're effectively left with is a, a, a left operating within the a world of nation states. Um, and I think you see this on our side with like a lot of discussions about, um, you know, people who are genuinely left wing about, you know, immigration and driving down prices, right? The idea I think there is that we have to accept the reality of living in a nation state world and then go from there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what, 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 what you see for a lot of divisions right now when it comes to foreign policy on the left are, are people who essentially fall on different sides of that equation, people who act like there is an international left able to coordinate, you know, things and, 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 and basically that's it. And people who act like that's not really true. And we mm-hmm. live in a, in, in a nation state world and, and, that's the reality. Um, and so um, I, I have complicated views of this issue, uh, but I would say just specifically talking uh, about the military question um, is that I, I think that um, we shouldn't ignore what sovereign citizens of another country want, mm-hmm. but in the absence of an international left able to coordinate things in a, in a very particular way, that can't be the be-all and end-all of, of, of a discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, then this also gets into complicated questions about social democracy. For the fact, you know, like in the United States, we only get social democracy when it's attached to an imperial project, a form of military Keynesianism. Um, and I don't know quite enough about Nordic social democracy, but I'd have to really look at the social bases of the social democracy to make a a broader claim about whether we should quote unquote listen to them. But as a general principle, I don't think that it should be the be all and end all that, that what citizens of other countries think should be an important thing that people consider when discussing things like NATO, but it it should not be the be all and end all. And from my perspective as a U.S. citizen, um, I think NATO is just continuing the the, the U.S. empire in, in, in a very particular way. I think that Europeans are quite wealthy. Um, I think that Europeans are, are, for the most part, quite safe. And I think Europeans are better able than Americans to determine what they want. But that should also mean that Americans, you know, U.S. citizens shouldn't necessarily give um, a blank check to, to, to European powers. That it, Fundamentally, the United States policy elite, of which the left is not a part, needs right. to rethink its, its, um, its position on NATO, why NATO exists, whether NATO should continue to exist, whether it's worth the resources, whether it's worth being entangled in European affairs now and forever. Uh, and it just seems like all of those discussions are totally ignored. So uh, maybe just to follow up on that and kind of wrap up, what do you see as the future for NATO expansion? Because I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, which is that, you know, I I feel like kind of prior to the invasion of Ukraine, um, questioning the just uh, uh, you know, infinite expansion of NATO was actually a pretty mainstream foreign policy position. I mean, obviously not everybody held that position, um, but it wasn't completely out of the pale or out of the blue to um, question that, right? So, um, do, I mean, do you think that there will ever be, or like in the near future, do you think that there will be um, a kind of a, a mainstream push to kind of rein in NATO or is it just uh, NATO for all 
in the future? No, it's a good question. And I just want to say, I think that you see a lot of people who are like nominally on the left to really embrace um, the U.S. intervening in some way or shape or mm. form in the Ukraine crisis because there's a search for like meaning right now. I, I think we've talked about it on the show and in general, yeah. there's just a lack of meaning in American life. So people like attaching themselves to things that appear romantic. And it is true. Yeah. I mean, like a smaller country pushing off an invasion by a much larger and stronger military power is something romantic. And, and there's something to attach oneself to. It's not coming from out of nowhere. But I think that explains the initial American mainstream sort of obsession with Ukraine, which is already fading because like, as I'm sure you've talked about on this program before, the news cycle and various right. other things make it difficult to, to maintain atta- uh, attachment. Like when was the last time you heard Zelensky sexual, right? It's already fading. <laughs> right, right. Um, but that, I think, explains it at the beginning. Now, in terms of NATO, I think this gives NATO in the short term a rejuvenatory, I don't know if that's a word, but a rejuvenatory burst. But my guess was that in the medium term, this is actually going to be a, a, a hinge point where I think you're going to be, uh, see a transition to a European-oriented defense absent the United States, um, as opposed to you know NATO continuing now and forever. Because there is a relative decline in U.S. power, mm-hmm. um, and I think that, that that is just a fundamental material reality that will continue to shape foreign affairs going forward and international relations more broadly. All right. Again, Danny's podcast is uh, American Prestige. We will link that below. Danny, good to see you as always. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jen. Good seeing you as well. Bye. All right. So I am now joined by our friend, Catherine Liu. She, of course, has been on the show many times before. You know her as a professor over at UC Irvine, the author of the book Virtue Hoarders, and a longtime California resident, which is what we're here to talk about today. Catherine, good to see you. Hi, good to see you. So I really wanted to have you on for a chat on what's the matter with California, so to speak. And I want to dive in by reading a quote from the sociologist Dylan Riley. Um, I've shared this quote on the show before, and I think it's a really interesting one. And and I just sent it to you, but I'm going to read it now. Mm -hmm. So this appeared in the NLR. This is by Dylan Riley. He writes, multicultural neoliberalism offers a profoundly unequal but rigorously equitable form of capitalism. Social mobility might be low in such a society, but not for illegitimate reasons of race or gender. California offers a template for a capitalist society informed by this logic. This huge and immensely wealthy state has been run for decades by the liberal progressive wing of the Democratic Party. What has its record been? California has an inequality index higher than Mexico, the highest poverty rate in the country, an aging population, a housing market out of reach of most middle and working class people, and poor public schools. It provides fewer and fewer working class jobs as its industrial structure becomes increasingly concentrated in the glitzy Bay Area Silicon Valley technology hub. This is roughly the model that multicultural neoliberalism offers the U.S. So I find this a really striking quote. Uh, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because, you know, in the context of this question of what's the matter with California, I think that we obviously hear a lot in, you know, progressive and or liberal circles that like there's something wrong with red state residents, right? Like you've got mm-hmm. like poor people mm-hmm. living in red states who consistently, quote, vote against their interests. Mm-hmm. And California is interesting to me because it sort of seems to have the opposite kind of contradiction or the opposite kind of problem, which is that it is an incredibly diverse state, a deep blue state, like probably the most capital D democratic state in the union, right? Mm -hmm. And yet, as Dylan Riley points out, has soaring income inequality, high rates of poverty. Um, The homelessness crisis is obviously a huge issue in California right now. And, you know, it's kind of like, why is this going on in a blue state, right? So, 
I guess the opening question for you is like, what do you make of this Dylan Riley quote? And what do you make of this contradiction that we have the state of California, which is a deep blue progressive state, and yet, you know, has all of these problems? Um, it's it's a really good diagnosis of what has gone wrong here. But um, there's some material issues that we can look at, which are um, the nimbyism of, you know, not in my backyard kind of um, um, ethos in the professional managerial class management of real estate and development in California and what all the policies in California now are designed to do, the ones that are passed by the state assembly because they have supermajority, the Dems have supermajorities um, in the assemblies and the legislature are all designed to benefit um upper middle class homeowners who are professional managerial class people for the most part, although there is a large merchant right wing class. We've talked about that before, but that merchant class is, you know, saying that they're voting with their feet and moving to Nevada and Texas where there are, there's no um, personal income tax, but um, the elites really work here through technology, through universities, through, um, increasingly medical research, private medical companies. Um, and the, I'll just give you an example of what is so crazy about California right now. One of the ways in which the governor and the legislature want to mitigate homelessness is by allowing homeowners to build um, dwellings, approved dwellings. They're called ADUs. I don't know, like little, little tiny, beautiful houses in your backyards. <laughs> That is their solution to um, the homelessness crisis, to the crisis in um, um, like availability of housing. Mm -hmm. Basically, this means like people who are homeowners like me can build a unit that we can then rent out for money. We get more wealthy. We have more value to our real estate because we can have approval for a rental unit. This is along the lines of like the solar policy, which they realize like 10 years down the line is really punishing um, lower income and working class people who don't own their homes. So they can't put solar on their homes and all of the um, wealthy people in my neighborhood are so proud of having solar energy. But this has actually driven up the price of electricity mm -hmm. and we've gotten all these tax breaks as a result. And so these are the kinds of progressive policies that California prides itself on. And we've really um, forge this boutique politics of what Riley says is, you know, sort of neoliberal multiculturalism. Um, it's, you know, um, more like I'm hesitant to use the term neoliberal right now because I think a lot of people just avoid capitalist mm -hmm. and use neoliberal instead. Right. So can we call it capitalist? Right. Um, multiculturalism, mm -hmm. late capitalist multiculturalism, finance capital multiculturalism. Like there are people like Wendy Brown who came out of Berkeley and is now in like some grand poobah in um, Princeton who's written, you know, so many books on neoliberalism and never does she talk about political economy. She's like mm -hmm. the she's like the perfect avatar of the California um, mentality. It was called like the California ideology, which was about the utopian dreams of Silicon Valley and tech. Now, like we're not even talking about utopia anymore. Although 
you know, Riley's description of it seems like it is a kind of um, capitalist right. multicultural utopia yeah. for the professional managerial classes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's dystopia for everyone else. Um, the median home value in my area has gone up above a million dollars and the median um, income does not break a hundred thousand dollars because there are a lot of working class people in Orange County. Yeah. So um, they're Latinos, but they're not just Latinos. They're all different kind of Asian um, populations in Orange County. It is incredibly diverse, but um, the kinds of middle-class home ownership that were promised by um, military, the military industrial complex in Orange County, the big Boeing and um, other aerospace industries, especially up near Lakewood, like mm-hmm. those kinds of promises are just gone. Right. They just it's gone. Yes. Yeah. Middle class. It is not a middle class utopia anymore or a working class utopia, which right. it temporarily was. Yeah. You know, in the period immediately after the war. I want to to jump in and ask you quickly about the um, component that Riley identifies of the multiculturalism or like this idea of equity, because what's interesting about California to me is like, as you're saying, like the pie is very obviously shrinking for middle class and working class families. At the same time, it does seem like there's a push from Gavin Newsom and other, you know, leaders in the California Democratic Party to distribute that shrinking pie more, quote, equitably among various racial groups, right? So Mm. what I'm thinking of here is Gavin Newsom will do things like he'll sign a bill requiring ethnic studies uh, in in California public schools at the same time that he rejects expanding, uh, you know, financial aid to students. This was something that, you know, Ben Burgess, friend of the show, pointed out the last time he was on. Um, I know that California has really uh, started an effort to try to close like the math achievement gap among public school students. But at the same time, it's like resources for public schools across the board seem to be dwindling. Um, You probably Mm -hmm. saw that California, the California Assembly, I think, recently approved a reparations task force. And there was like a big, you know, a big debate over who the reparations would be for. I think they finally, after much, you know, back and forth, decided that it would be limited to the descendants of slaves. So like, you know, not just to any Black person, but specifically to the descendants of slaves, which I guess makes sense in the context of reparations in some ways, but it's also weird in the context of California because it's like California was never a slave state. Just want to point that out. So again, not really quite sure like what the point of this is. Um, which and, and of course, you know, there's been an effort by Democratic leadership in California to reinstate affirmative action or to like, you know, get rid of meritocratic admissions at elite schools, which, as we've talked about before, seems to me like in the context of shrinking resources for higher education and public education in general, just an attempt to diversify what is a dwindling resource. Right. So, um I don't know. I mean, maybe talk a little bit about that, because I know at the same time that all of this is happening, something that's more universal, like the campaign for single payer in California has completely died on the vine. Uh, So so what do you make of that? I mean, is that just something that's a media spectacle? This kind of like, I don't know, like uh, racial equity or like sort of like woke component of California politics? Or do you really feel like that is something that the Democratic leadership is pushing? Um, well, both. I mean, yeah. I think the Democratic leadership in California is one of is really, really, really corrupt. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting about why it's so corrupt because there's it just has so much power. The yeah. Republicans are really screwed here. And so 
with great power comes the temptation to abuse it. So we have a, de- a Democratic Party here that is just abusive of um, democracy, really. Mm-hmm. If you look at Nancy Pelosi doing robocalls for Cuellar in yeah. Texas, she does that for an anti-abortion, pro-gun rights um, congressman who's being challenged by Cisneros, a Berniecrat, right? And she doesn't feel like there are any consequences for her. Right. She doesn't feel like there's any challenge to her. So it is a little bit like living in an autocratic state. I mean, our Republicans are admittedly like completely insane because right. they've been out of power for so long. But it is like living in a one-party one party um, political organization, kind of like the CCP, you know, <laughs> the Chinese Communist Party and the California Democratic Party have a lot in common, sort of. But um, one of the, but, you know, all joking aside, I just feel like the misery of being working class or um, a middle class person here even is, is like, you, you just wait for that explosion to happen. Mm-hmm. And, it's not really expressing itself in politics right now. And I'm not quite sure why we have, we've been taken hostage in this way, but it's because the Republican party is just so um, completely insane. You know, Bernie won the state in the primaries, like by, you know, by large margins. So you think that there could be like a building, a rebuilding of the democratic party um, and a transformation of the um, democratic party from, within because of that victory, but um, it's really not happening because the vested interests are just, they have too much money. There's too many um, um, NGOs funded by private foundations that, you know, put up a lot of smoke and mirrors, but the single payer thing was really, really incredible. It came, it didn't even come to a vote. It was killed before it um, came to the state legislature as a vote. And, um, you think like with a state that voted um, so overwhelmingly for Bernie with, you know, the younger part of the um, electorate being very much for this, that there would be a push for at least this to come to a vote in the state legislature. And it would have been really exciting. Right. And sort of politically motivate, motivating. So what I heard, you know, in terms of the scuttlebutt, and I think it's pretty easy to find out. Mm-hmm. I've been like too busy to do this is, that big pharma and insurance came in and they lobbied people really hard to just not, to just kill it. Mm-hmm. And um, that, I mean, is just incredible to me. But if you think about it, the Democratic Party in California is beholden to very, very wealthy donors and very wealthy donors from from tech and from various you know industries. And... Um, the big pharma and big insurance, they just came in and they just threw their weight around. And, you know, in the end, what California really respects is money. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have this like really um, corrupted and, you know, tyrannical um, democratic party, like displaying all of its um, progressive bona fides, but it's all a complete sham because what we have is um, just, you know, what the Riley, quote, um, describes, but, you know, um, and I was just listening to Chapo in California and the elections and they got it completely wrong. They said California has a $60 billion surplus this year. 
And they were like, oh, yeah, and it's from the COVID relief, right? And they're like, ha, 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 that's so much money. It's a $97 billion budget surplus. There's talk of establishing a sovereign wealth fund for the state of California. So we'd be like Saudi Arabia. I mean, it is a combination of the COVID money, but also because people got really rich in the past year from real estate sales and um, tech. And um, state tax revenues just went up like crazy. But if you follow the way, if you follow the money, and if you look at how California spends its money, it spent so much money on um, um, housing the house, the homeless, and you know um, those kinds of initiatives. And there's just nothing to show for it. Right? It's like a complete. It's an industry unto itself now. Just kind of like NGO industry. There's there's a pet project for every single thing. There is no systematic, no um, macroeconomic analysis of what's actually going on. And just like with the sort of single family dwellings now being able to be zoned to make their own little houses in the back, their tiny houses in the backyards. Um, it's, it's not um, systematic. It's not big. It's, there are no big projects. The, the, High speed rail between San Francisco and Los Angeles is like mired in, you know, um, budget overruns and like regulatory problems. And then, and so this comes back to, I think, like the old California ideology of counterculture plus tech, where Mm -hmm. you're like, small is beautiful. We're going to find all these small solutions. And it's like, no, we need to build huge housing projects again. It's not chic. It's not, you know, um, it's not a, a it's not like very um desirable and the other for from the point of view of this like small is beautiful thing the other thing is like they during covid they did there were all the hotels were empty so mm-hmm. the government the governor went and um created this program where um homeless people could find hotel rooms and live in them. And the rates of overdose just went up really crazy because there was no requirement to stop using drugs. Mm -hmm. And I think Schellenberger, you and I have talked about this, like Mark Schellenberger is making a run for governor against Newsom. Newsom is like a shoe. Newsom is basically like the emperor of California. (laughs) They were really funny on Chapa. He's like the God emperor, but he is like the God emperor. And, um, they tried to call, they tried to recall him. It didn't work. And so that only strengthened his hand. And now we have this like um, situation where it's an endemic homeless problem that is, that is fed by, a, you know, drug problems, mental illness. And, um, and there's this progressive left attitude of not being able to make interventions, but respecting people, keeping them alive mm-hmm. so that they can, you know, come to their own senses about, you know, quitting, about quitting the drugs. And with the kinds of street drugs that we have now, like fentanyl and all these other things, I mean, I just don't see that, like, I don't know, I don't even know what to call it, but like this touchy feely attitude towards this is just not going to work. Like we're We need some tough love here and nobody's willing to um, do that. No one's willing to go against the sort of common nostrum of like, Oh, we have to respect people. It's like, yeah, you know what? They're addicts and they might be mentally ill. And um, I would want, you know, to be treated in a certain way if I were just like destroying myself like that. 
but um, it's so. So I was actually, I, so I was actually in California last week, and this yeah, is just yeah. anecdotal, of course. But I was speaking to a journalist um, about some of the upcoming elections, uh, the primary elections in California, and he mentioned that the sort of top issues on most voters' minds seem to be crime and homelessness, right? And again, this is just, you know, one person's account, or this is just sort of anecdotal, um, and that doesn't speak for everybody. But it does seem that the, it, I mean, we've obviously been hearing a lot about both of those issues in the media as well. And I get that there is very much an impulse on the part of the left to not want to, like, overhype or like go, you know, obviously go right wing on those issues um, and create a kind of law and order backlash or feed into a law and order backlash. But I I am wondering if you think the kind of um, public concern over homelessness and crime, and then the way that the political class has been responding to that or not responding, uh, as you seem to be suggesting, um, what does that tell us about the growing division between working people and, you know, politicians in California? So, um, I feel like there is this attitude, and it was echoed today on Chapo too. Like, oh, they're so San Franciscans, they're so hysterical. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, their crime rate is the same as Amsterdam's, and they're going crazy. Well, actually, what has happened in San Francisco is not just like a bunch of pearl clutching, like upper middle class tea sipping ladies going crazy. Mm-hmm. It's actually like working class people in San Francisco, right? And a lot of them are Asian, and a lot of them were physically attacked during the <laughs> pandemic. Not, I mean, let's just say a small minority of them were, but people felt really, really endangered by this. Right. And like, and I think like the Chapo guys took up the attitude, like, oh my God, look, Walgreens is like Johannesburg to them, but ha ha ha. And they just laughed it off. But I feel like the, um, the, the working class people who are living in San Francisco, mm-hmm. they're like seeing the social fabric really fray. And I mean, I hate to talk about Uvalde and the shooting in Texas, but I'm just pretty upset about that. Yeah. And I feel like the social fabric in the United States is really frayed. Yeah. But if you're like, a liberal living in a nice community, you're just like, oh my God, why is everyone being so hysterical? It's all mm-hmm. law and order stuff. I mean, we shouldn't, it shouldn't come from law and order that there is a society where um, robust relationships of solidarity can be built. But, you know, it's one way to understand like how um, we feel like there's some like civilizational collapse at the same time in the United States. I mean, the, the the fact that someone who's 18 years old could go and get like an AR-15 and shoot up um, 10-year-olds is like, I, I don't know, it's pretty close to civilizational collapse. I don't feel like I'm being hysterical by saying that um, the social fabric is worn really thin. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily in my um, n- immediate neighborhood. And yes, there are a lot of upper middle class people who are like, oh my God, there's so much crime and everything. And they are um, hand wringing on that level. But like we're at a place where there's so much hypocrisy, like all the stuff that you're talking about, about, you know, the um, kind of um, appearance of social, the social justice, that's mm-hmm. the official language of the state mm-hmm. and the like raw suffering and inequality that we see on the street every day. That division just makes people mistrust all institutions. It makes people hate each other. Mm-hmm. You know, that makes, um, 
people um, suspect each other of um, either buying into this hypocrisy or just being passive about this democracy. There, there's a sense of like powerlessness about what to do. And all of the law and order concerns, yes, are probably construed for like um, people who vote, who are like older people, upper middle class people. Mm-hmm. And they're like concerned about that. But um, there's just a disorganized, well, I shouldn't say like in Kuwait, like um, sense that um, it, things are not working, even right. though like everything seems to be like um, on, on the bottom line, like in terms of accounting, doing really well. Um, the The social fabric of the United States is frayed, but there's just like in California, there's just but you can go from bubble after bu- to bubble, but in between, and this is you know, the case, I guess, in New York in a certain way, but people are maybe more mixed up. There's there's just a sense that there's like um, very little, we're being held together by like glue and like yeah. um, um, duct tape, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's barely, we're barely being held together and there's no real social mission. But this is the other thing, going back to the Riley thing, is like, you know, in a way, like we've realized that multicultural utopia, right? Mm-hmm. In California, right. you could say like, we say that like i guess we could kind of say that and then there's all this like serious real serious problems that are not addressed but there's this constant self-congratulation i just want to talk about like london breed the mayor of san francisco i do have like an asian american like um axe to grind here remember (laughs) when she was like saying that um african-american single mothers would qualify for um free tuition if they wanted to train as EMTs. Mm -hmm. This was during the pandemic. And, you know, she's the mayor of a city with a lot of working class Asian Mm -hmm. Americans. And there's, there's this sense that um, you can just take the Asian American electorate for granted. And I'm, I'm like, oh my God, this, we, we have to come up with a new party in California because the Democratic Party does not, the Democratic Party is now seeing race in a bipolar way, white mm-hmm. and black. They don't even care about Latinos. Yeah, actually, I, I was going like to bring that so up. I was going to ask you, I know, in California, like I in was going to ask you about Latino and specifically Asian voters in California um, who, like you were saying, like, I feel like at least from what I'm seeing, the Democratic Party does not care about at all, which seems crazy. But I also wanted to ask you if it even makes sense to talk about Latino voters and Asian American voters, because I will sometimes do that on the show. And, you know, there are reasons to do that. But of course, those groups are not by any means a monolith. And I think what's interesting about, you know, um, Asian constituencies in large cities like San Francisco or Los Angeles is you really do see a division between working class Asians and their professional managerial class counterparts in terms of where their politics fall, right? So I feel like the latter group aligns very, very closely with kind of the, you know, Newsom vision of California, whereas it's the working class Asians and of course, working class Latinos as well, who are really getting left behind and whose politics are really falling out of step with the democratic orthodoxy. So then we can come to the Chesa Boudin recall, right? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Right? everyone's like, oh my God, he's a son of Weatherman. I'm sorry. I'm like, if you look at the um, Recall to Zabudin website, and if you just listen to the scuttlebutt um, 
from Asian Americans and from various constituents in San Francisco, 50% of his prosecutors um, resigned while he was DA because they they just felt like he wasn't, um, he wasn't prosecuting any crimes. Mm -hmm. And the Asian American, Latino and African American working class communities in San Francisco were actually creating a cross racial alliance (laughs) to um, bring him down. And I just, and now he's like reaching out to the Asian American community and everything else. Um, I, you know what, like, I feel like we're just, we're in like opposite world or something. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I, I don't know how our politics run anymore because as I said before, there is this like populist anger that's yeah. not very, you know, well-directed and then this like democratic monolith that basically doesn't feel like it's accountable to anybody because it's just, <laughs> there, there, there are no challengers. Right. Right. Power. Right. right. So um, I don't know what's going to happen with that recall, mm-hmm. but I know for a fact that um, the people who want him out are not like upper middle-class white people clutching right. their pearls. It right. is a working class, you know, a cross-racial alliance of people who live in San Francisco who've seen, you know, the kind of um, um, wreckage on the streets. Oh, yeah, on top of they were, like, making fun of the Google worker who, like, um, you know, is picked up in a bubble and taken o- uh, over to Google. Do you really think the Google worker is behind the recall of Chesa Boudin? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. That Google bus just, like, picks you up from the mission, takes you to the valley. You don't need to see what's going on in the streets. You don't shop at freaking Walgreens because you get everything delivered by Instacart or Amazon. Who's shopping in San Francisco Walgreens? I think that your point about people in in the mission in Chinatown, Mm -hmm. it's like grow up, people. Go look at something and see who's living there and what's really actually affecting I think that your point about this populist rage, which is kind of like diffuse or like not very well directed, is really salient in terms of the recall, because I don't think that San Francisco's crime spike is the result of Chesa Boudin's policies. Um, you know, like the same way. Oh, are, are you skeptical or mm. I, don't, I don't know. Maybe you have. No, I don't know. Okay, I'm not yeah. a criminologist, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, but he's just I mean, standing I, for something. Exactly. Right now. Exactly. Like, like I think like, that whoa. I think that the problem. Right. The problem yeah. is more that he's sort of become an avatar for soft on crime policies. Um, and whether his actual record is what produced, you know, the wave in crime, I I, I think is a little bit unclear. Um, it's kind of the same way where in New York City, a lot of, you know, conservative law and order types wanted to link bail reform to the crime spike. And bail reform had nothing to do with the crime spike because bail reform, you know, is about just not punishing people for being poor. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Um, uh, this is but this is all to say that, you know, I I think that you're you're absolutely right about the the sort of class uh, composition of the people who seem to want to recall him. Um, but at the same time, it just goes back to your point where uh, I, I don't know that that will solve the crime problem. And that isn't to say that these people are wrong and wanting to, you know, recall him. But it's just to say that it's a mess, <laughs> as you were saying. Yeah. 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 I mean, and the other thing is like, there is a part of me that is saying, like, you know what a crime spree is? It's like a class war without any organization. Mm-hmm. So, but the problem is, like I said before, it's if it's inner city crime and it's petty theory and you don't want to, um, 
you don't want to prosecute it. That's one thing. But, you know, who is being, you know, who's on the front lines for that class war? It's not the Google employees. It's not lawyers. It's not PMC people. It really is working class people who are living in those neighborhoods, who have to use those shops, who have to walk those streets. And I'm not saying like police should are the solution necessarily, as you said. I mean, look at what happened in Valde. I mean, those people, that police force really gave Blue Lives Matter a different spin for me. It really was like, you know what? Our lives matter more than the lives of children and teachers. And it just infuriates me. But um, I was just, there's a layer of hypocrisy generally that is just really hard to live with. And so what kinds of, uh, you know, political organization explosion could come out of it. And I was talking to um, someone who I guess was a um, community organizer in San Francisco. And she was saying that, you know, um, um, working class people aren't necessarily law and order people that, you know, they just need to be educated and organized. And I was, I was like, okay, well, you know, I, I, I'm not an ethnographer. I don't know about right. that, but it was this idea of um, I come in and I organize working class communities. So this goes back to what I was saying before, which was that we're not organized by communities where we don't have class consciousness. And I, um, this reified notion of the community though Mm -hmm. really serves like the political class very well, because you can say like, I serve the interests of this community. You're the representative of this community. It serves people like me who can become the spokespeople of my community, but you have these um, sort of local problems with, you know, San Francisco residents or Orange County residents or Los Angeles residents that share a space right now. And that's like a very tenuous thing. So we decided to call it a community. But um, I I really feel like the fragmentation of our social, you know, whole is um, forcing, you know, the NGOs to talk about communities. And it's this language that really, um, only serves them to get funding. I was like, okay, so who are these organizations? She was like, she's like, um, they're NGOs. And I was like, who are their funders? And she said, private foundations. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, so you have to speak a language that's good for the private foundations and will keep the money coming in. And you think of the working class community as this inchoate mass that you have to educate. But, um, you know, I'm... I'm just not buying that. I mean, there is, um, you know, there's some basic leftist things we can say here. First of all, like you come in community, Barack Obama was a community organizer. What is that action called organizing? Right. Yeah. And she was very pessimistic about um, unions too. I was like, you know, Mm. so these people don't have like an interest, they don't have an employment interest. And she's like, yeah, because unions are very weak. I was like, so you can use the sort of residential um, thing to unite them she's like yeah and they just need to understand like they can work with each other and they don't have to have the police around. Mm-hmm. and I was like oh, okay so you're educating people who live in a working class neighborhood that they can rely on each other and not the police and it just seems like such a top down thing like there's no um I was like you know what I have I come from the old left tradition where um you re- you first 
solidarity only exists in the workplace. And then second, like as an, as an outsider or an organizer, like first, what you need to do is find out what the needs of working class people are. You learn from them. You don't organize them. And um, it's, it's so monolithic now. It's like me questioning this is not going to do anything because they are getting their paychecks cut by the private foundations. The private foundations fund the NGOs and um, our, you know, the university of California is like, basically I always say this, but everyone's like, okay, whatever. But it's like an ancillary arm of the democratic party. Mm-hmm. When did that happen? You know, should this really be it? Like, I wouldn't want it to be an arm of the Republican Party. Right. But we basically, if the Democrats come up with something, we jump too. Mm-hmm. And um, what was happening earlier when Schwarzenegger won that recall was that he was actually very friendly to the UC, but from this like old school, like liberal Republican point of view. And now that there really isn't a Republican challenge challenger it's like everything that the democratic party wants in terms of it's really curated like minority profile status that's what we deliver mm-hmm. and it's a very uh, the university now is very where i teach most of the ucs now are very medical school driven and computer engineering driven they're two profit centers because we have an aging population and so we want to do stem cell research to keep these you know old people alive so they can live forever um and then we have you know the techs the tech centered um education where we are training you know good little worker bees to work in silicon valley silicon beach um and whatever like silicon orange thing we have here so um so that's basically what we do in terms of servicing the the um the purposes of california industry and it all seems like work incredibly smoothly and um our chancellor is always like sending out these like consolatory emails because you've had so many horrible things happen recently and I'm like, you know what, STFU, this is not really your job to either console us or take a position on any of these things. Um, but he's got a module, you know, called um, that he's funded called Confronting Extremism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a series of webinars that we're supposed to listen and watch and then um, we can confront extremism. And, you know, the thing is, they're centrist, so they could very literally say, you know, leftists are extremists, of too, and of the far right is extremists. But I'm just like, after all of these atrocities, he's telling us that we should teach this in our classes and watch this. This is a violation, number one, of academic freedom. And this is him taking his bullet bully pulpit and using it for a little bit of virtue hoarding and signal. It's like, no, you you don't tell me what to teach and you don't get to appear to be a good guy here. But nobody says anything because there's no room for dissent. You know, mm-hmm. there's no um, contest. Well, I mean, on the subject of kind of like breaking the stronghold of the, you know, centrist Democratic elite, something you to go back to something you had mentioned earlier, Bernie Sanders won the California primary on Super Tuesday. I know it was, you know, a while ago. I'm always talking about it as well, because I think it was pretty incredible. And I'm wondering if you think it was that was a fluke or if that provides some sort of like hopeful or optimistic blueprint for, you know, any kind of left organizing in California. I um, I feel like uh, you know, sort of we're, we're sifting through the ruins of that 
elections still. Mm. I, I want to say that he won like 65% of the vote, but I might be was, wrong. I don't have the numbers. It was significant, but it was like specifically among Latino and Asian American voters. Yes. But I and so, and I was at talk a lot about of that the, too much. No, I know. And I was at a lot of those rallies. I think a lot of those young um, voters that were first time voters, they voted when the, things didn't happen. They just turned away from politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I just don't think that there's any way of like, um, um, well, like how do you? We need to galvanize them again, maybe in a oh thirty six percent. I'm sorry. Oh, plurality. oh, I just reversed were, it. Yeah. It's like okay, I'm gonna just say sixty percent, but okay, thirty six percent, and there were and everyone was still you know running then, so there were a lot of right, people. Right. So actually, that's really depressing, but um, because I had such an inflated number in my mind. But um, I think it was a, a galvanizing moment, and then you know now we're like we're sifting through the ashes of that. And I think a lot of like young voters who voted for him, they're totally disillusioned, and they turn away from both parties, and they've got sort of gone back to kind of political passivity. So you have like PMC concern trolls again taking over the DNC and just like doing whatever they will with their you know, um, political power that they have in the state. They don't even want to admit they have political power. They are the freaking tyrants of our mm-hmm. state. Um, I can't tell like George Floyd protests, you know, were really violent day one, day two, there was really confrontation. There were confrontations all over LA. Day three, I went down to LA City Hall and they had gotten someone at the bullhorn in front of thousands of people going, protest and vote protest and vote and i was like oh my god like how quickly did this happen 72 hours and it's been completely absorbed by um electoral politics Mm -hmm. so i i don't know what to do about this and i'm like i feel like there was all this energy but i don't but i feel like the party knows that those people don't remain committed to to voting. Mm-hmm. So they don't need to cater to younger people, to um, younger people of all races who came out to vote in California. So um, there's a lot of economic um, insecurity. And, you know, the California ideology is really powerful, right? I'm looking at all these crazy people on my ballot who <laughs> are running for president, I mean, not president, governor, you know, because we have the jungle primaries. Right. And like, Half of them are called like small business owners, entrepreneurs, entrepreneur. Okay. Small business owner, small business owner, owner of a restaurant, entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And there's still like, oh, there's someone, Pamela Elizondo of the Green Party is a marijuana plastic entrepreneur. Oh, yeah. Very California. Right? And I'm <laughs> like, there, so there's still that idea that... um if you just hustle here and you just hustle a lot, you can still make your make your way in the world. Even even though housing is so expensive. You know what, Jen? I'm actually like I the the cheapest places to live for young people, I know you're in New Mexico. I think it's a purple state. It's like I wanna tell young people like go live go to a college town in a red state because it's 
hopeless here. Yeah. It's insane. Unless you have inherited wealth and somebody's right, going right. to help. Uh, uh, um, well, but- I will say, so something that I saw today, which does seem like a good sign, is I saw that a social housing bill passed in California's assembly. So this is a bill to design kind of like European style, like mixed income, mixed use housing, rather than, you know, just the like usual, like stigmatized, like public housing in a neighborhood that like no one wants to live in. Um, to so scale, huge, in huge, to scale. Yeah. 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 So, but again, now that it's passed the assembly, it's going to be in the Senate. So you tell me what that means for its I, future. I, I don't know what that means, you know, yeah. because so many things, so many progressive things get passed and then they kind of die. Yeah. And then there's like this internecine fighting. So I, you know, here's the thing is like, actually you've, you when you just feel really powerless living in this deep blue state, which mm-hmm. I guess you described it as, and um, there's this kind of dislocated feeling of um, not really having like oppositionality, yeah, because there is no organized left. I mean, I'm sorry, and I'm not supposed to criticize them because, like, uh, is this like punching down? I have no idea, but I had really high hopes for the DSA, and there are some progressive, um, candidates but no no one like um no one even like Cisneros in um in uh Texas you know um there are some there are some younger people who are coming up and you know to challenge democratic incumbents but here's the thing is like the incumbency thing is so powerful mm-hmm. that that's why you feel really powerless yeah. because at least in like certain districts like AOC's district, or, you know, I was really hoping in Texas as well, that there would be a progressive um, challenge to a democratic incumbent. But one thing about living in a place where the democratic party is so strong and so corrupt is that you have to deal with incumbency and to really mount a um, candidacy from the left means you're not adhering to democratic party discipline. And I can't talk about this now because this is sort of confidential and I won't, um, um, I I don't know if you want me to talk about this right now, but when a Bernie crowd elected official is just being attacked right now from um, the Democratic Party side, right, of course. one for her willingness to um, work with Republicans and her um, independence with regard yeah. to Democratic Party orthodoxy. And so they're the ones who are taking us her down. Like, that's what's happening in California, which is like a very bad sign for how um, the Democratic Party in power deals with its left flank, which mm-hmm. is always to suppress and repress mm-hmm. any any notion of dissent with regard to party party lines yeah. and um and that's that's the power of the party i always think like I, i'm kind of joking but i also i was thinking like what if we had a um latino or asian american um candidate who could run on a socialist slate that was also um anti affirmative action in california <laughs> Are, are you saying you're throwing your hat? In the ring? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not kidding. throwing my hat in the ring. But I'm just thinking, like, what kinds of you know new political formations do we have to create here to produce like that kind of um, a, a popular or mm-hmm. a wellspring of dissent with regard to these things that I'm describing? That you know, when I'm not a depressive person, Jen, but when I'm talking to you about this, I'm just like, oh my God, it's just so effed up here. I mean. 
there's so many Black Lives Matter signs up. Have they not read the articles about BLM? Like, shouldn't you be ashamed? Like, maybe just take them out of your yard because you finance Patrice Cullors' house. Um, the power of that um, orthodoxy around mm-hmm. this very groomed, manicured, you know, neoliberal, late capital multiculturalism just really serves people well here. And and yet, so, and yet, right, I'm comfortable here because um, being Asian American is very normalized. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, so maybe one final question for you to kind of like cap all of this off. Who is the very worst Democratic politician in California? Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> but I also, like, I don't want to. I was like, maybe she'll say Newsom. Oh no, um, may uh, I? I just think she's so awful. But then I was thinking, like, how about Diane Feinstein? But she's just like really old and won't take. And but she's like the RBG of <laughs> um, California politics right now. I mean, she's just occupying that place. Um, her husband, though, was truly evil. Richard Blum was a regent of the University of California through the financial crisis, as he was a regent of the UC system, defunding the UC system during that crisis, he was investing in for-profit universities. Like, Uh, why wasn't that a conflict of interest? Why wasn't he booted out? And you know what really gets me is he, before he passed away, funded in almost every UC campus, the Richard Blum Center for the Study of Poverty. Oh, study of poverty. Well, (laughs) I mean, this is like this huge hedge fund guy who actively promoted um, universities that defrauded working class people during and after the financial crisis. And um, he's like, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, we'll take his millions. We'll take his billions and, you know, do and do what we want, do what he wants us to do. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're very, we're just um, there's very little like um political room for um, opposition because it just seems like we, we all flow where, where the money goes. And that's what the D that's what the democratic party does. And um, why do I feel like there's no hope on the local level? Cause you hate, you hate the small is beautiful. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> I, you know, I, I, I guess, I guess I used to, you know how people were like, um, you know, think locally, act locally. Well, the local thing in California is about this diffuse, like hegemony of like, um, gig worker, um, Uh Silicon Valley triumphalism. So that is our local culture being exported. This model of inequality, you know, exported everywhere. Um, this model of like technocratic multiculturalism mm-hmm. plus libertarianism, mm-hmm. like really scary forms of libertarianism, um, just make it just like make us put us in this political impasse. And I don't know. I I uh, I wish I had more optimism about a way out with regard to the California democratic party, but I really don't. Um, Maybe there is like a union power that would come up and, you know, and um, challenge them. It would have to be, you know, the, it would have to be an alliance of unions because 
the Democrats are just so well-funded and right. so powerful. Um, well, I was going to say, my understanding was that the nurses' union was very instrumental in trying to push the single-payer bill forward. They were. Um, the National course, Nurses' I, Union yep. were incredible. They yeah. were incredible. But, of course, as we were saying earlier, you know, among other interests, I remember reading that Gavin Newsom, who had initially signaled support for the bill, just kind of turned his back on it or let it let it wither. Um, just let it yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is... This is the this is the crazy thing about this, the state is that materially speaking, we all know that single payer would do more for African American health and well being and working class of working class health and well being of all races, right? Mm-hmm. But it's one thing we can't have. We can have um, every diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative, but we can't have single payer right. care. And right. this would be the thing that would make a difference for people of color in the state of every single um, skin color, gender, sexuality, persuasion. Um, but it's one thing we can't have. I think New York is closer to it than we are. Um, oh, really? I don't know. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as someone who's been living in both states with different kinds of coverage, I think New York has more progressive healthcare coverage as um, policy for even for insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And so all the innovation that we have in California has just created like a more austere, more surveilled form of, um, of public goods. Right. Well, well, like austerity in public goods, surveillance of public goods. And what is going to happen to that $97 billion surplus? They say they want to keep it for a rainy day because there's a recession coming up, but, um, what, how will it be used? I mean, you know, Schellenberger, who is a critic of New Sims, just says that we just keep throwing money at um, homeless problem. Nothing goes away. Nothing is done. And um, will will high speed rail be more um, work out better because of that surplus? I don't there, there isn't a there isn't a holistic vision or an idea of like anything that we're. I'm headed towards the environmental movement here is very fragmented. It's always about like saving one area or saving another area. And I, and you know, they just killed a desalination plant in Huntington Beach. And it was like really raw, raw environmentalism. I'm like, what, what's going to happen when the water runs out? It's like any big project is going to be opposed by various interests. So we can just have like private desalination, desalination, um, projects. I don't know. At the same time, we continue to have very, very good weather. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. I was. Gonna, I was going to say. Last note is that I saw an article in the New York Times literally today that was something like, "Here, why Californians love California," and then it was like a bunch of quotes from like a bunch of different people about how they love the good weather. <laughs> so, <laughs> so to make a long story short, mm-hmm. um, politically. Very regressive, although um, apparently liberal. We we are the pioneers of late capitalist um, diversity initiatives. <laughs> Catherine says so. Dylan Riley appears to agree. Um, Catherine, again, is the author of Virtue Hoarders and a professor at UC Irvine, obviously longtime California resident. Catherine, always good to see you. We will have you back whenever there are new developments in California politics for the better or for the worse. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Thanks so much. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you. you.